Inbound to Mitchell. Got to hurry. Two seconds left. Knicks going to back off. Mitchell's three, no good. And the New York Knicks take game one, their first road game one win in 24 years. Sabonis drive and kick. It's Mitchell. And that's it. Light the beam. Miller. Tarasenko, he scores. Tarasenko's not going to miss very often from there. And move from behind it. A giveaway on net. And the rebound score. Ellie Tolvanen puts it home as the early mistake burns the avalanche. And the Kraken cracked the ice here at Ball Arena with the first goal of the series. Otani rips one toward the gap in right center. This one is deep. And this one is gone. Shohei Otani puts on the show in the Bronx. It's a two-run homer in the top of the first. And it's Otani who strikes first in this series at Yankee Stadium. You're listening to another edition of Sports Today with Peter J. Here's your host, Peter J. Mulroy. Yeah, that was a cool series when the Angels were in town, Shohei Otani and company uh, taking on the Yankees in the Bronx. That's always good entertainment when you've got the big guns in any sport going toe-to-toe with one another. It just really doesn't get any better than that. And that was a really enjoyable series with the Yankees and the Angels. Yankees, the only team in Major League Baseball to not drop a series thus far this year. Welcome to the new time slot. Same routine, same show, same program. New day, new hour. 5 p.m. live on Podbean. Live each Friday. Sports Today with Peter J. Thanks again for joining us. Lots going on this week. NHL, NBA playoffs, knee-deep. And there's plenty that's gone on to this point. But I want to start in Major League Baseball. And we'll go around the entire sporting scene as well. A little golf. Big news out of the NFL today as far as gambling is concerned. Uh, More on that in a little bit. With the postseason action going on. The ice and the hardwood. But Major League Baseball. You're paying attention. You've got to be unbelievably impressed with the way Tampa Bay. We talked about it last, last week. At the time, they had won 13 of their first 14 games, started the season 13-0. In the modern era, only the third team to ever do that. Now they sit at 16-3. The Atlanta Braves 14-5, Milwaukee Brewers 14-5. That's impressive baseball, 19-20 games into the season. Looking around the rest of the league, when we uh, before we start talking uh, a little bit more about the Yankees uh, and the Mets here locally ac- across the tri-state area, you know, I kind of teased it in my promos for the week. While it's great that the big wigs, specifically Atlanta and recently out of the American League East, Toronto, uh, Tampa Bay, I'll consider them a big wig because all they do is find a way to win 90 games year in and year out. They're not the sexiest team on paper. They're not the sexiest team on the field, but they find a way to win games. And I had teased to the fact that while Milwaukee, Atlanta, and Tampa deserve all the accolades that they're getting early on, that there might be a couple of teams, specifically one, that in 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 my view, 
is not necessarily getting the credit they deserve. And that's the Chicago Cubs. 12-7 and seven out of the gates, two out of the, the lead behind Milwaukee. And if you're going to include the Cubs in that conversation, how about right ahead of them in the NL Central standings? The Pittsburgh Pirates. If I told you in five of the major categories offensively that this unnamed team is top five in most of those categories offensively, the Pirates might have been amongst the bottom of your guesses. Well, they're not. This Pirates team has been very impressive this season, as have the Chicago Cubs. And you look in that division, slow start for St. Louis, Cincinnati again. I, I, I don't know why I've done this two years in a row in these ridiculous pools that I get myself involved in. I'm talking about the over-under pool. I went through my over-unders a couple of weeks ago, right before opening day hit across the country. For the second year in a row, my freaking best bet was the Cincinnati Reds at plus 66. It was a team that started 3-22 and 22 a year ago. I just didn't think they'd be that bad this year. Here they sit at 7-12. and 12. Out of the question that they don't hit the over? No. But I'm scared. 19 games into the season. You had to know. You had to figure Atlanta with its pitching and its lineup. Albies, on down Acuna, Austin Riley, that they were going to be right there. The Mets as well. Once the Mets got out of there, a little offensive swoon more on that in a minute, that they were going to figure things out. Plus, like the Yankees, they've got some guys coming back, namely Justin Verlander. That helps the Mets right there at 13-7. and seven. But the Cubs and the Pirates, from what Chicago's been able to do, and what the Cubs have been able to do, I mean, pitching-wise, the last couple of starts, including today for Drew Smiley, he's been their best pitcher outside of Marcus Stroman. And Justin Steele's off to a great start. Smiley almost threw a no-no today. And he's been big time against the Dodgers, who boast one of the best lineups, at least you would think, at season's end, one of the best lineups, most productive lineups in all of baseball. Smiley's nailed him twice. Marcus Stroman, 2-1, ERA. Justin Steele, 3-0, ERA. Smiley's ERA with today's performance, nearly posting that no-hitter, dropped from 4-7-0 to 3-1-3. He's now flat even at 1-1 one one through four starts. Really only had the one bad start early in the year. Smiley's been great. And this pitching comes together. Mark Leiter, a nice young addition. Michael Fulmer at the back end as well. Now, this team can pitch. And they're going to find a way to manufacture runs. I mean, you're talking about offensive statistics. For those of you who play fantasy baseball, if you're a Pat Wisdom owner. You know what's funny about Patrick Wisdom? I drafted him late in my draft. Dropped him early on and out of need. Went back and got him again. Man, am I great. Glad I did that. Nine home runs, 18 ribbies. Gets on base. 270 average. That's impressive for a young third baseman. Cubs can build around this. 
Jan Gomes is producing behind the plate when he's there. Trey Mancini is producing at the plate. Ian Happ, always a hot commodity around the trade deadline. This Cubs team heard it through the media, seen it on social media from some of the guys, the prognosticators across and those who break down sports for a living, specifically Major League Baseball, think the Cubs should be thinking postseason. I agree. Why not? With a start like this, with a rotation that's keeping it together, the Chicago Cubs team can start thinking a little bigger. You can build and win at the same time. It's it's it it's an imperfect science, baseball. If you do things the right way, you can rebuild and win at the same time. And then if you look at this Pittsburgh Pirates team, offensively, they've been remarkable. If it's Sawinski, Brian Reynolds, the veteran Andrew McCutcheon. I mean, this guy's like a fine wine hitting 290, mostly serving as the DH. G1 Bay gives them the ability to steal bases along with Brian Reynolds. You go back to a year ago when Pittsburgh was at the bottom of every category. We all thought Reynolds was on the move. Here he is, and through 20 games, he's hitting over 290. He smacked five over the fence. He's driven in 17, and he's stolen four. Rodolfo Castro at short. Connor Joe has made the most of the opportunity, and I think he's really been the most impressive. You've got the veteran Carlos Santana, who's driven in runs at a nice clip, and he's getting on base because he's walked 10 times, second on the team in walks. But for Connor Joe out in right field, now, numbers-wise, is he going to hit 340 for this season? Probably not. That might not be sustainable. But on the back end, as this goes forward, not too many people, maybe the diehards who follow and watch the Pirates game every single night, I don't do that. If they're on, sure, I'll watch it. It's a baseball game. Beautiful stadium, by the way. If you haven't been out there in Pittsburgh, I highly recommend it. Absolutely breathtaking. Fans are great. Pittsburgh's a great city. True American city. And it's a hell of a place to watch a game. So you get a chance to go to a Pirates game or you get over to, to, to a Steelers game. Plan your weekend around that because you're going to have a good time. But back on Connor Joe, this kid will be a fantasy asset if for those who dabble in, in the world of fantasy sports, if he keeps this up, all the more impressive with this Pirates team is that they're doing it without O'Neal Cruz, who's gone for the season after a devastating injury sliding into home plate earlier in the season. Season starts, this guy's basically out, gut-wrenching for those who drafted him in fantasy, even more so for the young man himself, who was really primed to have that quintessential breakout year. But if you want to talk about some teams across Major League Baseball that have been undersold to this point, you've got to start Cubs-Pirates. I mean, the Texas Rangers lead the AL West at 12-6. and six. That's been another fun team. They're 8-2 and two in their last 10. And the, the, the way that they've been able to score runs, I mean, they're popping them up with the best in the American League. Only Tampa Bay scored more runs in the AL than Texas. And as a matter of fact, Texas is only third in Major League Baseball in runs scored because it's been Tampa Bay and Chicago who have scored more. Pittsburgh's a top five scoring team. The Dodgers, no surprise, are a top five scoring team. Baltimore and Boston. The problem with Boston at 10 and 10, and this is not a surprise either. 
because in the MLB preview show I did a few weeks ago with the over-unders going through each division, some of the sexy opening season matchups we went through, I had all five teams in the American League East hitting their overs. And you look at the standings now, we're on track. Boston, statistically, record-wise, is the worst team in the division, and they're 10-10. and 10. Toronto, a step above them at 11-8. and 8. Baltimore, third at 11-7. and 7. The Yankees are right there at 12-7. and 7. Tampa Bay continues to roll at 16-3. and 3. They haven't lost the game. 10-0 at home have the Rays. But it, where I want to now shift gears is to the locals. Again, those who might be new to the program, Sports Today with Peter J. National show, international at times, with a New York twist. So if we're looking at this Yankee team, now overall the pitching's been solid. And I'm still high on a kid like Johnny Brito, one of their uh, high minor league prospects who's now been thrust into the starting role on the big level. Really had the one bad start. Was pretty good the other day uh, in limited innings against the Angels. Walked a couple. A few pitches got away from him. But overall, I think you like the prospective of having him down the road in the future. You could do worse. Because when you're comparing Brito to somebody else, one of the other younger guys, a la Clark Schmidt, there's not much of a comparison. I mean, I think if there's one area where you're, you really, you're probably not even on the fence as a Yankee fan anymore. It's uncomfortable, probably for you watching from home or at the ballpark, if you're a Yankee fan, when Clark Schmidt takes the mound. Because it's rare to see someone with Clark Schmidt's repertoire as good as a fastball as he has, to struggle this mightily. Hasn't made it past the fourth inning in any of his four starts this season. And earlier this week, Tuesday night against the Angels, it was a chore. But the one thing we've heard from Aaron Boone, and it's hard sometimes to take these managers at their word because things changed. We saw what happened with Madison Bumgarner yesterday, Tori Luvulo, saying we don't know what the move is going to be with Madison, who continues to struggle. We'll have that conversation not two hours later after that report came out. Bumgarner was designated. So things change quickly. Now, that's not going to happen with Clark Schmidt. He is very much in the program for the Yankee future. It would be insane to think anywhere else. Start a bullpen that remains to be seen. And I say that. Because Aaron Boone made it pretty clear the other day that the Yanks are going to let Schmidt work his way out of these issues by remaining in the starting rotation. And I think if you piggyback these things, the good thing is there, you probably like what you got from Domingo Herman the other night. And you have Garrett Cole and Nestor Cortez. I mean, Cortez heard Michael K. say it on the broadcast the other day. Uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact, his streak of of nine consecutive starts allowing less than three runs came to a close he went six gave up three it's still listed as a quote-unquote quality start but that fun little streak came to an end yesterday and Garrett Cole's been one of the best pitchers all season across baseball so you have that working for you at 12 and 7 5 0 and 1 in season series this this year they haven't lost a series they're the only team in Major League Baseball and that includes the Rays to not lose a series to this point in the young season. And I think you feel you feel pretty confident with the way 
the offense is starting to develop now, even with the absence of Giancarlo Stanton. There were some setbacks on the injury front. We'll get into that now. But overall, the ability to manufacture runs, Anthony Rizzo's had a great season. Anthony Volpe, the good young shortstop, is giving you the ability to get on base, whether a walk or a single or a double. Smacked his first home run last week uh, in a pretty impressive fashion, which was cool to see. And the kid runs. The kid steals bases. And up the middle defensively, he's been solid. Glaber Torres is producing. And I think once that outfield is really settled down with the return of Harrison Bader, run production will come uh, at an even greater clip. As far as the outfield is concerned, the Yankees signed the veteran Cole Calhoun to a minor league contract yesterday on Thursday for those listening live. He's going to go down to the Florida Complex Yankees. Um, Through his career, he's had some pop. He was a 2015 Gold Glove Award winner uh, in the American League. And versatility-wise, Cole Calhoun, you would figure he'd be eventually called up, can play all three outfield positions. Now, the interesting thing, yesterday on the 20th, Luis Severino threw against Harrison Bader in live batting practice. So Severino was back on the Yankee Stadium mound earlier in that afternoon. He threw 20 pitches to Bader and the other veteran, Willie Calhoun. 15 pitches came out of the bullpen as well, and he was hitting between 95 and 96 miles an hour, according to reports from MLB.com. He said he felt good. Uh, Matter of fact, he sawed off a couple of Bader's bats. Um, Speaking of Harrison Bader, so the good news there with Severino, and get him back before month's end would be huge for the Yankee rotation and the Yankees in general. Bader is going to go down to Somerset, the AA affiliate, and go on his minor league rehab. That starts tonight while Severino goes to Tampa, and you'll probably see another BP session. Severino gets into a minor league game, and here he comes back to the Yankees, if all goes according to plan, right before the 1st of May. Josh Donaldson, the veteran and the starting third baseman, like it or not, had some issues with tightness during his recent minor league uh, contest in his right hamstring. So. While Donaldson called that manageable, the Yankees are going to be very careful here. So nothing major, and this is pretty much, Donaldson said this, quote, I'm trying to stay with the mindset that if it's not anything major at this point, let's keep it that way. I'm bummed out. I feel like it was going to be any day now, but we'll just take it day by day, and hopefully this gets ironed out. Yeah, I mean, Donaldson obviously wasn't spectacular with the stick in his hand last year, and his defense suffered for it down the stretch. But asset-wise, he can be one to the Yankees, and they're going to need him if they want him to be their everyday third baseman. Now, LeMahieu can cover the hot corner at times. They flirted with Volpe over there. You have maneuverability. Oswaldo Cambrera has played third. IKF, who had a nice game in center yesterday, made two really phenomenal plays in center field as he continues to acclimate himself uh, to that part of the defensive diamond. But Josh Donaldson is going to and needs to be a part of this team. So with Oswald Peraza getting recalled from AAA to take the place of Giancarlo Stanton, who I mentioned is on the the 10-day injured list a few moments ago, the biggest and most unsettling news that came out of the Bronx this week 
revolved around Carlos Rodon and the idea and the news that he was experiencing back discomfort. Through a, sp- a split bullpen session on Wednesday and said that his, quote, back is still barking a little bit. So now manager Aaron Boone wants to get the situation calmed down and it, it refers to it as frustrating for Carlos. Of course it is. It's frustrating for everybody. Back issues are a big deal. And with someone on the shelf already for that same reason, and it's still continuing to give him pain and discomfort, I don't know if it is all that realistic that you see Rodon come back in May. He wasn't expected to come back until May as is. But then you get this report. It's entirely possible that the Yankees might milk, potentially, how bad this injury really is. Because you don't mess around with a back. And this was the Yankees, outside of bringing Aaron Judge back, this was their offseason splash. Huge offseason splash. And this can get real problematic for the Bombers moving forward. The good news is that Luis Severino looks like he's ready to roll and he'll be back soon. You got Frankie Montas out until June because they're definitely not going to mess with him after you had those earlier season reports that he basically came over to the Yankees and pitched banged up when he came over from Oakland. So they're not going to screw around there, especially after Rodon is tossed in this bullpen session and then reports continued back soreness or tightness or discomfort. Not good. Despite the messaging there, however low-key it might be, not good. Not good at all. So that's going to be something to keep an eye on. Overall, outside of this, great injury update? No. But getting Severino back, having that 29-year-old veteran there is a big deal. And while the Rodon news is unsettling, with Harrison Bader on the mend, Josh Donaldson still teetering there. The Yanks 12-7, and seven, producing runs. And they've been sound defensively. And the pitching in the rotation and the back end has been relatively solid. It's a good baseball team. 12-7, and seven, probably right where they should be. And as these reinforcements come back and they get healthier, you would expect more of the same to continue. Mets have the same record, 12 and 7. They've won five of six. Heading into Thursday night's game in San Francisco, won that game. So winners of six of seven. Took two of three from the Dodgers in LA. And now what the Mets are dealing with, you've got Justin Verlander continuing to rehab in the minors. As the baseball world and Mets fans await his official Mets debut, which could still happen in April if things stay on track. Talked about that last week. Kodai Senga's been solid for the Mets in his debut campaign. And now you have the Mets dealing with the Max Scherzer issue. So if you might not know what I'm referring to, Max Scherzer is on the shelf for a 10-game suspension after being ejected for a foreign, a foreign substance on his pitching hand. This was against the Dodgers Wednesday. 
pitchers come off the mound as they go to the dugout. The umpires will stop them and ask him for checks. Phil Cuzzy, Dan Bellino at the time, the umpiring crew, Bellino serving as the crew chief. Cousy the umpire. Max Scherzer's explanation of it was that he was using rosin and washed his hands with alcohol after the second inning following the inspection. Come the third inning, time to get off the mound and go back to the dugout, because he saw or thought he saw that Scherzer's glove was still sticky, perhaps from too much rosin. And he asked Scherzer, or told him rather, to change gloves. Go into right before the fourth inning, another check. And that's when Max Scherzer started to balloon. He was fed up. The problem here that I have is I'm I'm wondering with that ejection of Scherzer after the conversation gets heated, Francisco Lindor comes in to try to cool him down. Obviously, the manager Buck Showalter comes out. You're gonna have rosin on your hand. Right? You're gonna have sweat on your hand. You're pitching anywhere at any level. Now we end it to the fact that you're out on the West Coast of the United States in Los Angeles. Your hand's going to be sweaty. Your hand's going to get sticky with that sweat and the rosin. There's nothing wrong with what Max Scherzer did. So I'm as confused as he is. Because I think it's it was general confusion on his part. And Scherzer basically said the reason he didn't appeal. He didn't bother appealing because he knows what the outcome was going to be. I thought in that instance, with this ejection of Scherzer, that the umps were pulling the trigger too quick. And it begs the question. We had an incident in the Yanks game the other day with Wandy Peralta up against Shohei Otani, right? Not an easy assignment for anybody. And Peralta's been great. So a difficult assignment offensively for Otani and an extremely difficult one on the mound for Peralta. He doesn't get the pitch before the pitch clock expires. And the penalty there is your issue to ball. The problem with that was Peralta, one, didn't come set. Two, Otani wasn't in the box either. So you, I, you also could have issued Otani a strike. Overthinking or not knowing how to implement these rules. This is two examples of that now, which is, is kind of scary if you think about it. Because I don't think you need to get gung-ho with these rules. They change them for the speed of the game. I get it. You want to do the checks for the foreign substance with guys getting drilled in the face a couple of years ago, protection-wise, to take this off. I mean, you're not limiting injury there by not letting guys tack up the ball. Pete Alonzo came out last season and said, I have no problem with pitchers putting stuff on the ball if it's going to help them control it because I don't want to get drilled in the face. I don't want to get drilled in the neck, back, and shoulder. Spite attack, whatever it might be. Advantage pitcher to a certain extent, but if it helps them control the baseball, fine. Because now I think we're getting a little bit crazy with these checks. And then after the third time, checking a guy like Max Scherzer, surefire Hall of Famer, had no problem showing the glove, changing the glove, and then he gets ejected. There's just no reason for it. The guy was using a substance that's prov literally provided by Major League Baseball. 
the fact that Scherzer was so adamant about his explanation, I don't even think he needed to give one because it should have just been ho-hum. That ejection was absurd. And quite honestly, from, from Scherzer's perspective, I understand why what his thought process there for not appealing it. But I think if you really broke this down and they took the time to review it, I think he would have had time. I think he would have had a really good opportunity to win this appeal because I thought that was absurd. I thought the issuing of the ball with Wandy Peralta in yesterday's Yankees game, the Thursday matinee against Otani was absurd because Otani was not set either. So you've got these rules. It's fine. Rules are rules. They're implemented. You follow them. But there's got to be a better job collectively, yes, from the umpires, but from the top, from Major League Baseball, to make sure that before you pull a trigger on hooking a guy out of the game, that there's a a legitimate, banned, illegal, whatever you want to call it, substance that he is using. From everything we saw and everything we learned, that was not the case with Max Scherzer. Guy's using rosin. I don't understand that at all. And if 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 I don't understand it, and MLB umpires clearly don't understand it, who does? Because to me, all this says is that MLB doesn't have a clue, which is a huge problem. Pitch clock overall, I like. I got no problem with that stuff. But you're gonna you're gonna take a, a veteran like Max Scherzer out of the game after he was checked three times for this for using a substance that exists there as a part of Major League Baseball is absurd to me. Rosin on his pitching hand in his glove. Switch the gloves from the third into the fourth at the behest of the umpires. And then they give him the heave-ho. I mean, this happened to Domingo Herman not seven days ago. Umpires wanted him to clean his hand. He basically just said, go scratch. They came off the field, talked to him pretty vociferously, and that was it. So in that moment, if you compare the two, which I kind of went back and watched the video from that. You want Herman a week ago to clean his hand. He doesn't. He ignores him. Whatever. He gets to continue pitching. What was on his hand? Sweat, rosin, water. Why didn't the same rule apply in Los Angeles to Max Scherzer? Scherzer listened to what the ump said, and they still tossed him. So two guys with the same substance on their hands, one doesn't listen, and they give him, you know, the old grade school, well, if this happens again next time, you're punished, young man. And he stays in the game. Scherzer does everything, and he gets booted. It's absurd. MLB's got to clean this up. And if you're going to do this pitch clock thing, you better be damn well sure that that batter's in the box 
and the pitcher is set and that clock stops before you issue a ball or a strike. Yesterday in that Yankees-Angels game, Peralta was not set, neither was Otani. You either let nothing happen or what you should have done was call a strike on Otani for him not being in the box first. So they screwed that up as well. So there's things here to be cleaned up across Major League Baseball. But outside of those things, it's been a good start to the season. Some news across the league. The Oakland A's purchasing land in Las Vegas. It looks like the move from Oakland out to Vegas seems all the more likely now. As the anticipation with that continues to go. So that was really outside of what happened with Scherzer and the little tidbit in the Yankee-Angel game yesterday, some of the bigger news that came off the diamond uh, the past week. But really the driving point behind this segment, how good some of these teams have been early, and then you got teams like the Cubs in Pittsburgh, why not think big at this point? Mets playing good ball. They've The, the early offensive struggles, but on that West Coast swing, 36, six, 37 runs going into last night's win against San Francisco over the first six games at a West Coast swing. That's solid baseball. 13 and seven now overall, picking up win 13 last night before they come back home. You'll get Scherzer back after the suspension. Verlander sooner rather than later. And the Yankees playing good ball as well. Good time to be a New York sports fan. You get the new, the Yankees and the Mets playing well. And then you get the Devils, Rangers, Islanders, Knicks, and Nets all in the postseason. Man, is this really a really fun time to be not just a sports fan, but a New York area sports fan. Brooks got him a three. And Brooks staring at LeBron. LeBron not returning his gaze. Garland the other way. Makes a move. Step back. Triple. And defend. What a stroke. Garland has been a flamethrower with 32 points for the Cavaliers. NBA playoffs have been fun. And you heard in the open that the Knicks got the, the game they needed to win in game one out in Cleveland to start the series. That was the Knicks being able to close a contest late. It's a Knicks team that can go up and down the floor or slog it if they need to, which is an important asset to have against a team like Cleveland. Why? Because Cleveland, as we saw in game two, possesses the best defense in the NBA. Now, my initial prediction when I went through the NBA and NHL Opening round series was Knicks in seven, which would be the franchise's second series win in the last 24 years, which again is painful to say. I'm sticking by that. But this was the Knicks team in game one that showed up in a big way and they were clutched down the stretch. Cleveland's defense was just too much in game two. And Darius Garland pouring down 32 points in the game doesn't help. But that was, the, uh, that was a W credited to that Cleveland defense. Which is what the series comes down to, folks, right? The aggressive nature of Cleveland's defense versus the explosive capability of this Knicks offense. 
Julius Randle back, that's huge. The Knicks healthy at the right time, that's big time. You'll get off nights. But now, here's where it gets fun. Game three tonight, Friday, April 21st, 8.30 p.m. tip on the East Coast at Madison Square Garden. Crucial game here with the NBA series now getting a little tighter as we move forward. 1-1, game three, coming to New York City on a Friday night. That's theater at its finest. That garden crowd's going to be rocking for game three at MSG. And that's what put my daughter to bed at about an hour from now. Do some house chores. And I'm going to sit down at 8.30 and watch this game. Because I think this is a quintessential series that's going to go seven. I like the Knicks tonight. Start off on the right foot now. Even slate. You took care of eliminating the home court advantage for the time being. For Cleveland, don't give it back. Win the first game at home, which is game three of the series tonight. Then you could start looking ahead. I mean, that Nick fans are thirsting for moments like this. It's been a while. They've been a playoff team, but not a successful one. This is as big a game as the Knicks have had in those 24 years. Had a nice run a couple years ago. Got the J.R. Smith drama. I know it's a thorn in the side of the Knicks and the fan base. I get it. This is a huge moment, and this is a biggie in the series tonight. Plus, that Garden crowd is going to be even more maniacal as they feed off the energy from what the Rangers had done in Jersey in the first two games of its series against the Devils, going up 2 nothing. We'll talk about that in a few minutes in the next segment. So, I mean, it's it's going to be deafening in Madison Square Garden tonight. And that's going to be must-see TV. You go from Manhattan to Brooklyn, the Nets got a problem. You know, you're going up against the MVP, Joel Embiid in Philadelphia, in a 3-0 series now. Philly, here's how Philly's done it. Their offense was just too much in game one. Suffocating defense in game two, and the series moves from Philly to Brooklyn, and they're clutch in game three down the stretch much like the Knicks were against Cleveland in game one. All the more impressive is that Philadelphia did that late in the game, minus James Harden. And if you didn't see it, James Harden was ejected from game three for what officials deemed to be an unacceptable elbow to the groin area of Nets defender Royce O'Neal. As you would imagine... Because he's somewhat of a quiet guy when it comes to the media. Harden, not happy with that decision-making. Now, some of the things he's done throughout his career, I don't know that James Harden, not a dirty player. I mean, he's no fan favorite. I get that. He's been around the block. I mean, there are similarities there with uh, traveling around the league and being somewhat cancerous where you go. Sort of like with Brooklyn. Hasn't worked everywhere. 
and I don't want this to seem like the type of show where all I'm doing is hammering umpires and officiating. But like I felt with Scherzer's ejection, which I thought was absurd, and then the 10-game suspension, which I thought was even more grotesque. And even on a, on a lower level, MLB umpires issuing a ball to Wandy Peralta in the at-bat uh, late in yesterday's game against the Angels for simply not knowing their own interpretation of the rule that Major League Baseball implemented. I felt the same when I watched this play because I watched the game live. Philly's just a better team. That has nothing to do with this. The call against James Harden was absurd. And it got worse. Difference of 10 seconds, game clock and shot clock winding down the third, and O'Neal is on Harden. And they're going to take a look at this. A shot to the midsection of Royce O'Neal. Ruling on the floor, flagrant foul, penalty two. Harden is ejected. Yeah, you listen to the end of that clip, and I cut it short. The broadcast crew there, uh, Kevin Harlan and, and Reggie Miller, uh, Harlan the lead play-by-play guy, Miller the lead analyst. Everybody saw, there. The, folks, there was an elbow. Offhand elbow. There was. But the reaction that you got from that broadcast crew, an oh my God, wow, an are you kidding me? That was not any situation where James Harden should have been given the level two foul and thrown out of the game. You don't have to like the guy as a fan. You saw that play, that guy gets ejected for that. That's absurd. That was absurd. Now, Philadelphia has had its it, its fair share of success, most recently against Brooklyn. If you take the regular season and now the 3-0 series lead, they're 7-for-7 seven seven against Brooklyn this year. Now, three of those games were close, including last night's Game 3. Brooklyn's key coming in was how would they match up with guys like Embiid and Harden. They have been able to do it. And, and what is going to stand out now, outside of Philadelphia just absolutely dominating and playing veteran-led basketball, smart basketball down the stretch to close out game three and take a dominant 3-0 lead, that'll be overshadowed with the nonsense surrounding James Harden. You can go back and watch the play. Offhand elbow comes around trying to create space. You want to call a foul there? Go ahead. In the postseason, I might not. Did that probably feel good for O'Neal? No. You get him in the manhood region, that sucks. But intent, purposeful intent to injure? To the tune of being booted from the game? No. I'm sorry. It was ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous to throw James Harden out of that game. And that could have bit Philly in the ass. 3 0 2-1's completely different series. This is not a bad Nets team. Philly's just better. But you potentially give them that momentum if Philly was not able to close the game out, which, of course, we know they did. Could have been problematic. Original pick here was Philly in six. Looks like they may get it done uh, even quicker than that, though Brooklyn certainly showed some life last night. But, I mean, again, if you didn't get a chance to see it, it's been all over the news, all over sports media. Just search it online. James Harden's reaction, obviously, he thought it was incredulous and absurd as well. But as far as Philly's concerned, they're up 3-0 uh, with Game 4 in Brooklyn looming. You look at the top two, two seeds, Milwaukee and Miami. 
It wasn't a great start with Milwaukee. Yeah, you lose game one to a good Miami team. Not, not your quintessential eight seed, this Miami team. But then you get Giannis banged up out for game two. And all Milwaukee does is play one of their better games of the season to even the series at one apiece. Bucks have Giannis, right? I mean, this team is as good as any in the league, including the Celtics and the Grizz. More on them in a minute. And the Nuggets. And you got to throw Philly in there the way they've played. But Milwaukee is scary good, and they look scary good even without Giannis. So you go 1-1 going into game three uh, in Miami. Boston up 2-0 on Atlanta. Uh, Celts in five, I like that. I'll stick by that. They're 5-0 combined, 3-0 regular season, now 2-2 two for two in the postseason uh, against Atlanta. It, this And this is a Hawks team that had been one of the better shooting teams, and it, Boston's just too overwhelming. With the weapons they have, good three-point shooting team, guys with the ability to carry the load down the stretch in bunches, that's the makeup of a championship team. And I think you're looking here in the East, Bucks, Celtics, Philly, Man, I mean, Milwaukee and Boston, neck and neck right there. I might give that slight edge to Boston, but Philly's still in the mix as well. So the East is fun. It's been fun. You know, if you watched that Philly-Brooklyn game last night, it was great. Philly's up 3-0, but it doesn't mean the games aren't entertaining, specifically that game three. You go out west, you got Denver-Minnesota in the 1-8. It's 2-0 Denver. This is a team that just rocks people at home including the two postseason games. They're 36-7 and seven, uh, in the mile high. Jokic's an absolute monster. And there's just too much firepower. And we've seen that through a couple of contests. Now, this Minnesota team, you know, 500 club, have the talent. Carl Anthony Towns among them. But Denver's just too good. So they'll go on the road for game three in Minnesota. We'll see. Denver in five, six maybe. I don't think it's going to be a sweep, but nothing shocks me, especially with the balance across the board we've had in the, in the, in the NBA this season and now in the postseason. Lakers jump out on Memphis in game one in the 2-7 series, and then you get similar to what happened in the Milwaukee-Miami game. John Morant absent from game two, just like Giannis was with a bruised right hand. And it was the Lakers team who was successful against Memphis. During the regular season, LA's healthy. LeBron's playing well. AD, that's great. So now you got a Lakers team on the road taking game one in Memphis. And now no John Morant for Memphis in game two. Yikes. Nope. Didn't really make much of a difference. Memphis looked pretty damn good in a 103 93 victory uh, in game two. And it's, that's the type of win that good teams will find a way to pick up without their captain, their A player. And you heard in the open um, some of the nonsense that was going back and forth between LeBron James and the Grizzlies' side. LeBron doing his best to ignore it, specifically as it came from Dylan Brooks, who actually referred to LeBron. He doesn't respect him, he's old, drop 40 on somebody, and then you'll get his respect, he's just old. That's a little heavy from a guy like that. To be staring, again, 
There's going to be people that love LeBron James and hate him. What the guy's done in his career is freaking remarkable. And a, and a comment like that from Brooks is he's staring. You want to stare him down? It's great. Competitive nature, it happens. All right? But give me a break with a comment like that from a guy like Dylan Brooks. Really? I mean, there's no that that's comparing apples and swimming pools. There's just no comparison. Now, my original pick for the series was Grizzly in six. I'm sticking by that. I was teetering a little bit there after game one. But this Memphis team, uh, just balanced between Jackson, Tillman, Brooks when he's shooting well. I mean, you, you look at game two with Brooks running his mouth. I mean, LeBron dropped 28 on 12 of 23 shooting. He struggled from three. LeBron knocks a couple of those shots down. It's probably a different game. Now, Memphis got hot early and stayed hot through the break. Up 15 and up 12 after the third quarter. Up 15 and a half. But it's a different ball game if, if LeBron's a little better from three. But Brooks has got to shut his mouth with comments like that. Now the series goes back to, back to L.A. Wouldn't really want to be pe- pissing people off with the talent that LeBron James, even that not at 100%. And Davis, the Lakers are healthy. Nobody at this point in the year is 100%. And bulletin board material, specifically when Steven Adams and Brandon Clark, two of your better defenders, are not there, as the series now goes back to L.A. tied at one, LeBron doesn't need any extra motivation. And just because he didn't, because he didn't respond to Brooks staring him down doesn't mean he doesn't know what happened. And not just because of media reports. If you don't think that guy noticed it without looking, he's got peripherals. Grizzlies in a series I like. Don't be surprised if L.A. jumps up 2-1 in the series, however, to take uh, that advantage into Game 4, and it goes from there. I do think this Grizzly team packs too much of a punch for L.A., but I could see it go in the distance, but I like the Grizz. Kings, Golden State, I was high on Sacramento. I said that. I know in the 3-6, everybody wants to go with the defending champs. It's understandable. Clay, Steph, great. And you get this um, all the some of the other nonsense um, that had, had taken place. But Sacramento, to jump out to a 2-0 series lead on its home floor, was impressive. And the way that they did it. I mean, there's not much more you can say about DeMontis Sabonis and De'Aaron Fox. There really isn't. To be able to do some of the things that they had done against a team that came into defending champs, had beat them three out of four times during the regular season, to take the first two on your home floor as a team that hadn't been in the postseason in 17 years, impressive. Now, game three, we know some of that nonsense I'm referring to, specifically Draymond Green and the incident that happened with him and Sabonis. Now, if you watch that, Draymond, was his his reputation doesn't help him stepping on the chest of Sabonis. Sabonis did wrap around his leg. I get that. But then he tr- crushed the guy's chest in, which was a little much. But if you paid attention, and by the way, the commissioner was in the building watching the game. If you paid attention to how Draymond was acting upon being thrown out of the game, that's what got him suspended for game three. I'm willing to bet that if he didn't do that, he doesn't get suspended for game three. But he was acting like a buffoon. 
getting into it with the crowd at, uh, upon his exit from game two. Got him game three. It could have burned. It wouldn't have been the first time he burned his team by acting like an ass. It just so happened that Golden State won game three. So they bailed out their teammate for acting like an idiot. Kings in seven. I'm going to stand by that from last week. Suns Clippers was my favorite series coming into the playoffs outside of Knicks Cavs. Me being a lifelong Knicks fan. It's 2-1 Phoenix. I like the Suns in six. Kevin Durant's been outstanding for this team. These are two teams that know each other very well. Went two for two, two and two against one another during the season. Kawhi Leonard. Responsibilities there are daunting at times. Mostly responsible for guarding Kevin Durant. But how about the offensive resurgence he's had in some of these games? Against a Phoenix team that was hot coming into the tournament. And now we'll go game four in L.A. With Phoenix leading 2-1. I like the Suns in six. I think this is the series to keep an eye on, folks. At least in the opening round. Winner of this series can do damage out of the 4-5. I mean, there's a lot that... I mean, Sacramento's a team. We're seeing that now. You can't rule out Golden State in a 2-1 hole. Phoenix and LA are very good. You go in the East, the Knicks can do damage. Cleveland with its defense. Philly, obviously. Boston, Milwaukee. Outside of those teams, right? You know, Denver, Memphis, if you'd like to include them. And then the Bucks and the Celtics are probably the top four favorites. But crazier things have happened. This is a talent-loaded NBA postseason, and it's going to continue to be great, just like its counterpart in the NHL. Now to return for Lindgren, shoots, he scores! Well, Lindgren hit the crossbar with a high-rising shot in period number one. He delivers here from a difficult angle. Vanacek's not going to like this one. Panthers control off the draw, Montour, long shot, scores! Another one, as Montour from right at the blue line, blasted one home, it's 5-2 Florida. Yeah, these opening round games across the NBA and NHL have been phenomenal. I mean, if you take a look at that Seattle-Colorado series, Colorado defending champs look terrible in game one at home, they go down, and then go to game two, they're in a 2 nothing deficit, get two goals in a matter of minutes, and wind up winning game two, three to two, to even the series at one game apiece. So anything can happen is my point there, but I want to start this segment with the Rangers-Devils series. I was on the record a couple weeks ago as one of the people saying that this Ranger team wasn't as good as it thought or many fans think it is. I might have been wrong. Because what the Rangers did in the second part of the season to revamp the roster and load up for the tournament was bring in Vladimir Tarasenko and Patrick Kane to pad their lines. Add Tarasenko to a line with Kreider and Zibanejad. Add Kane to a line with Panarin and Trocek, who they signed during the offseason, and then let the kids play together on that third line. And through two games in the postseason, it has worked beautifully. It's been the Kreider-Tarasenko show. Tarasenko's got two, and in two games, Chris Kreider's got four power play goals. He has been everywhere. Vitek Vanacek's a good goalie. He just has not had an answer 
for the firepower that this Ranger team possesses. And oh, by the way, this is a New Jersey Devil team that was third in the league in scoring during the regular season. And they've got one and one, one on a penalty shot to show for it through two games. And if you're watching game two from a Ranger perspective, Patrick Kane got nailed for his performance in game one. High-profile acquisitions. Patrick Kane, at 34 years old, still the best active American in the National Hockey League, did not look good. Rangers won the game, so ho-hum. He was all over the ice last night and scored in his own right. So for a series that came down, and we talked about this last week, that was going to come down to, yes, two teams that have the ability to score, score quickly and score in bunches. It was going to be, how is that Ranger defense on the back end going to slow down and ultimately stop the speed of that New Jersey Devils team, who basically from the puck drop of the opening game of the season have been lightning in a bottle. And through six periods, the New York Rangers have simply outclassed their crosstown rival. Is the series over? No. But now shifting back, folks, if you don't live in the New York area or you've never been to the Garden, nothing I say is going to justify how it really is going to be the next couple of days at Madison Square Garden. With the Knicks tipping in Game 3 tonight, Friday, April 21st, for those listening live, that's an 8.30 game on the East Coast. In a series that's tied 1-1, the Knicks are home at the Garden. Tomorrow, April 22nd at 8 p.m., the Rangers, with a 2-0 series lead, bring that advantage to Madison Square Garden. The building is going to be shaking. They call it the Mecca for a reason. I mean, all the Billy Joels and the Bruces of the world, there's nothing like the Knicks and the Rangers. And there's nothing like the Knicks and the Rangers when they're both relevant, talented, and dangerous. It hasn't been this way in the New York area for a long time, folks. You've got seven teams legitimately in mixes. The Yankees and the Mets, 25 combined wins. I know it's three weeks into the Major League Baseball season but they're contenders. The Knicks, the Nets, both in the playoffs, all three local hockey teams. And you can't discount the Islanders. They're in a 2-0 series hole, lost both games by a goal, game two in overtime. And I picked the Islanders in six as my original prediction. They're in a 2-0 hole. I am staying with that prediction. I don't change picks. I'm still sticking with Rangers in six because I, I refuse to believe that the Devils are bad enough to get swept. I don't think it's going to happen. But if you're here and, and you're a New Yorker and you root for any one of these New York teams, what this does for the city collectively is remarkable. Especially you, you talk about some of these businesses, the bars and restaurants that have TVs that offer these specials to come in and watch a Mets game or a Devils game or a, a Ranger game or a Yankee game. The money that generates, especially coming out of a freaking pandemic, it, this is huge. All of these places are jam-packed, and you can feel the energy. 
I'm in school yesterday. Everybody's got a Knicks or a Rangers shirt on. It's awesome. And it just hasn't been like this in a very, very long time. And it's been missed. And now you've got the Knicks with the ability tonight to take a 2-1 series lead. The Rangers can go up 3-0 on Jersey if they win game three tomorrow at the Garden. And the Islanders still in the mix, even though they're in a 2-0 hole. This is awesome stuff. I mean, you go 90 minutes down the parkway. Phillies had a nice run of it as a city. With the Phillies getting to the World Series, the Eagles getting to the Super Bowl. There's nothing like when that happens in New York. And it's happening now. Just quickly around the league. One of the things I I, I discussed in my teaser blurb as a preview for the show was can the Panthers really compete with Boston? Apparently. I mean, they were impressive in game two as one of those wildcard teams. And this is a record-setting Boston team. I mean, you haven't seen 135-point regular season with 65 wins. That's absurd. That's 43 points more than the team they're playing in the first round. And the series is tied at one with game three coming tonight at 7.30 on TNT. I still like Boston here in five. Can Florida compete? Yes. Will they win the series? No. Can it go six? Yes. Seven, possibly. I doubt it. Give me give me Boston in five. They're just too good. Veteran-led team. These, these guys get better with age. And they're strong on the defensive end of the ice. I just don't see it happening. Now, an interesting note, staying in the East, is the Toronto-Tampa Bay series. I was all over Tampa Bay. I got them in six. I'm staying with it. And man, I thought I looked like a freaking genius in game one when Tampa Bay comes out and just throat stomps mate, uh, Toronto to the tune of 7-3. And this is a Toronto team that the joke's been going around the league no more is the joke that the New Jersey Devils only win the offseason and they just take a dump on ice and do nothing with it. We've seen that this year. The joke now is, can the Toronto Maple Leafs get out of the first round? I thought there was no way that that's going to happen. Mitchell Marner, I know, is playing great hockey. Nikita Kucherov, the veteran for Tampa Bay, understandable. 111 points during the regular season for Toronto. I was still all over Tampa Bay. What does Toronto do in game, in game two? They flip it around and hammer them 7-2. to two. So I don't know where this series is going. But I'm going with my old buddy, Recency. And I'm going to stay right here, and I'm going to live in Tampa Bay because of what they've done recently, winning cups, getting to the East Final, getting to the Stanley Cup Final. This is a veteran team, good coaching. They know how to win hockey games. Uh, Toronto, great regular season. Nice bounce back in game two. But I'm going to stick right here with Tampa Bay game three tomorrow, April 22nd. That's a seven East start. That game and a good broadcast crew for this one is going to be on TBS. I mentioned the Islanders and Carolina series. It's 2-0 Carolina. I'm still trusting Brock Nelson and company here. And I am by no stretch of the imagination as a New York Islander fan. But in an 0-2 hole, Losing both games by one, including game two, 4-3 in overtime. Now the series goes back to Long Island. You talk about pumped up buildings. UBS Arena may collapse because of how much they're going to have that building rocking. 
right? It's not the old Coliseum, but I've been to that UBS arena, granted to watch an awful Notre Dame basketball team lose to an even worse St. Bonaventure team on Black Friday this year. That arena is beautiful. That arena is absolutely beautiful. And it is perfect for hockey. And that place is going to be going absolutely bonkers when the Islanders come back in. That game's tonight at 7 o'clock on TBS. I'm I'm in an 0-2 hole with this one, but I'm sticking with, with New York. Give me the Islanders in six. I like it. The Colorado-Seattle series is interesting because this is not – there's a lot of similarities here with a first-year team in Seattle like when the Golden Knights, Vegas, was the first-year team and went to the Cub final in year one. I'm going Colorado here, but man, is Seattle making this real interesting. Winning game one, going up 2-0 in game two before Colorado really just became the avalanche. It was a 109-point team during the regular season, and the Kraken had won 46 games to the tune of 100 points as well. You don't see this all that much. But Nathan McKinnon, 42 goals, 69 assists during the regular season. I mean, those are legendary numbers. On an individual basis, Colorado's just going to have too much, but it's going to be really interesting to see what this crowd is like tomorrow, 10 o'clock Eastern on TBS, when the series shifts back to Seattle tied at one, because they're going to get their first look at a postseason home game for the Seattle team, and it's against the defending cup champions. Now you go out to the Dallas-Minnesota series, also interesting couple hundred-point season uh, scorers between the Stars and the Wild. Minnesota grabs game one in double overtime. I watched that game. It was spectacular hockey. Spectacular hockey game. And then Dallas imposing its will in a 7-3 victory in game two. Series goes tonight, 9-30 on TBS, back to Minnesota. I, you got you to gotta stay Dallas here. It was Dallas from go. But again... Much like in the NBA, you're going to get these moments. You know, I use the, the the Phoenix LA series as an example. If you pick the Clippers, I'm not surprised. I went Suns. They're up two to one. That series could go either way. Brooklyn's in a 3-0 hole to Philly, but as they showed last night, they can hang with them if they play sound defensive basketball, which they did. Philly was just better down the stretch. So anything can happen in these series. I just have to go Dallas here. It's going back to Minnesota. 1-1. The Vegas-Winnipeg series, if, you, if you're not a big hockey fan and you're really only maybe watching locally uh, the Islanders or specifically the Rangers-Devils series just for, the, for the, the fanaticism of both fan bases, if you want to really start to get more in, in investing in hockey, I recommend you watch the Vegas-Winnipeg series. This is a Vegas team that racked up 111 points during the regular season. The Jets put up 95. Jack Eichel came over recently from Buffalo in Vegas. 27 goals, 38 assists during the regular season. Kyle Connor, a good player, uh, the star left winger for the Jets. And you've got two passionate fan bases. Winnipeg takes game one in Vegas. The Knights come back and win game two. I don't know that in hockey, maybe the Predators and the Rangers, outside of them, I don't know if there's a more passionate fan base in the NHL than the Winnipeg faithful. Four o'clock, April 22nd on TBS. You're going to want to watch this hockey game. Wait till you see that opening aerial bird's eye shot 
when they come inside the dome for game three in Winnipeg. I'm assuming it's going to be a whiteout. I'm not 100%, but that building rocks. They are hockey loyalists. I mean, you talk about some of the original six. I get the Rangers, the Bruins, the Canadians. I get it. Now in new age, the Edmonton fans go ballistic. And we saw that in game two after they dropped game one in overtime to the Kings. Just went absolutely off the charts insane in a, in a 4-2 game two victory with game three tonight at 10 uh, on the East Coast on TNT. The Winnipeg series with Vegas and the Edmonton series with LA out West, to me as a sports nerd, it's must-see TV. And these hockey series and these postseason series are great. As far as the Knights-Jets series, I'm going to stick with Vegas in six, and I'm staying with the Kings in seven. A lot of people went Edmonton. I'm going to stay in that 2-3 matchup. I'm going to stay with the three. I'm going to go with the Kings. I'm going to go old school there and stay with the Kings in seven with that series tied 1-1. The Knights-Jets series, uh, series obviously tied at one as well. So listen, you've got plenty to tickle your fancy across Major League Baseball, NBA, NHL in the next couple of weeks. MLB season's long. Maybe focus your attention, NBA, NHL, because it, it's there's something to watch every night. And there's a lot of must-see games starting tonight with Game 3 at Madison Square Garden. Uh, Knicks, Cavaliers nodded at one game apiece. I mean, this is what it's all about. earlier in the week that came out of the National Football League. Bill Safety, DeMar Hamlin, who took that horrifying uh, hit to the chest, accidental, from T. Higgins, is returning to action. And one of the things that really resonated with me when Hamlin uh, uh, addressed the media earlier in the week, describing what everybody saw during the hit on January 2nd, Commodio Cordis, uh, the leading cause of death in young athletes across all sports, which is basically a, a direct blow at a specific point when your heart beats. That's going to put you into cardiac arrest and you're, you're on the floor within five to seven seconds. And just blackness, which is exactly what happened to DeMar Hamlin, which is it, calling it terrifying is almost inappropriate because you, I, I don't even know how to describe it other than from my perspective, it, it was terrifying to see that young man down. Somebody younger than me, and I'm a young guy at 37, to see that is scary, and I'm sure it resonated with many people. But now, now with this guy going to become an advocate in making sure that th these things can happen, as rare as they are, it can happen, Specifically is within youth sports. Look, I coach baseball of my school's team. I love these kids. I treat them like they're my own. And we lost our season opener the other day, 5-4 in seven innings. It was a great game. And the kid, you know, they, they took it on the chin. We had a great practice yesterday. They come back ready to roll. We got a game tomorrow at 9 o'clock. But just to think that this could happen, especially now as a parent of an 8-month-old, it's scary. But then to, to see this have happened in the NFL to this guy, DeMar Hamlin, who just looks like a just a regular dude who you want to be around. 
And for him to be questioned about his NFL comeback somewhat inappropriately by members of the media, not the first time that that's happened. That's why I don't want to work in sports media full-time ever again. Hamlin's response was great. You could see it from all perspectives, he says. I died on national TV in front of the whole world. And for him, like many of us, to have to deal with death at one point, Hamlin said this, quote, you can keep going in something without having the answers and without knowing what's at the end of the tunnel. Or you might feel anxious, you might feel any type of way, but you keep putting that right foot in front of the left one and you keep going. I want to stand for that. Look, there's a lot of people that don't want their kids playing tackle football. I get it. I'm somewhere on the fence with it, but I understand it. And I know that there's a lot of people that if this happened to someone, the individual themselves or if they're minors, their parents or their guardians would yank them from the sport. Hamlin going back out there, you could consider it courageous. And then there's the other aspect of him wanting to stand for that. You keep going. He's doing his job too. And I think that's impressive. And I think this guy should be applauded for that. Because there was a lot of mixed messaging, a lot of nonsensical messaging about what might have been the cause of his heart injury. I'm not going to go down that watering hole, which was absurd. And now we know it was uh, something that is fairly common and scary. And this guy's going to come back and he's going to play football in the National Football League? Come on. If you can't root for that and you can't support that, then you probably just have no business watching sports. Some other good news around the world of sports. Another good guy. After 23 years coaching Notre Dame basketball, Mike Bray stepped away. Mutual parting with the Fighting Irish. He's going to join the Atlanta Hawks staff next season, which is pretty cool. So all those years, five years on the sideline as a head coach at Delaware, years before coaching on Coach K's bench at Duke as an assistant, then coming over and joining the Fighting Irish and really doing things that no coach in Notre Dame history, as far as basketball is concerned, including Digger Phelps, had ever done. Two Elite Eights seconds away from the Final Four, and that 2015 loss to Kentucky, it, it's still, it, it's, it's the hardest loss I've ever dealt with in any sport in my life at, relating to Notre Dame. I'm still not over that missed Jaron Grant corner three at the buzzer that nearly dropped to beat an undefeated Kentucky team at the time. Still not over that. But those memories last forever. And now Mike Bray, an all-around good guy, you thought he might go for the TV. Now he's going to join the Atlanta Hawks staff, which is interesting because Quinn, uh, Quinn Snyder's the head coach of the Atlanta Hawks, and these guys know each other well. I mean, they worked together for years. Snyder's got the Hawks in the postseason against the Celtics in a 2-0 hole, so now he's going to reunite with his buddy Mike Bray, um, and that's going to be something to watch Mike Bray, uh, his first real glimpse of, of what life will be like as an NBA coach. Um, it's going to be pretty cool uh, to take a look at that next year. And I'm happy for somebody like Mike Bray, who I've had the opportunity to meet a couple times on trips out to South Bend. He's a good dude. He's a funny guy, too. <laughs> a regular guy and a damn good coach. And um, after 23 years in South Bend to get a position like this, 
the guy could have gone anywhere outside of USC and Michigan, and I would have rooted for him. And now I'm going to have an eye on the Atlanta Hawks just because he's on the staff. And I'll root, I'll root for them except when they play the Knicks. Now, I'll, I'll end the show, and I don't normally like to do this. I like to consider myself a glass-half-full guy, but some really crappy news came out of the NFL today. Uh, you got five guys suspended for betting. Now, there's a couple of layers to this. Four of them Detroit Lions players, which, I mean, it, it's, again, I'll, I'll use the phrase, this is why we can't have nice things, even when the Detroit Lions have a good season, narrowly missing out on the playoffs, talent all over the field, they get hit with something like this. You got four Detroit Lions players, including their 2022 first-round pick, Jamison Williams. This is not the first time he's been in trouble, by the way. Who are among five guys league-wide who are suspended for violating the NFL's gambling policy. The league did this whole investigation. Uh, news was released today that these four players on the Lions, uh, as well as Shaka Tony, a defensive end, on the Washington Commanders are gone. The Lions cut Quintez Cephas, a wide receiver, and safety C.J. Moore. They're, they're suspended indefinitely. They'll be Along with Tony, they'll be able to, Shaka Tony, they'll be able to reapply for reinstatement after a year, um, but it won't be with the Lions. Williams and Stanley Berryhill are going to be suspended six games for Detroit for mobile betting that occurred at the Lions facility uh, it's Allen Park facility. Uh, according to reports, they didn't bet on NFL games. All right. So my two cents on this, it's a tough one to wrap your head around. All you've got to do is go back and look at what happened uh, with Calvin Ridley in Atlanta for gambling gets nailed for an entire year. Now, I, I have not been shy about my feelings and how the NFL does business from the top down with the institution of a 17-game schedule, which is absurd, Thursday night games, which is absurd, the opportunity that they were even thinking about adding uh, Wednesday games, even more asinine. I'm not a huge fan of going overseas. I know these guys get uh, paid a lot, and you want to expand the brand. It's a tough sell to have to go to London and come back six days later on a short week practice after you're getting the shit kicked out of you on an NFL field and have to go do it again now after uh, two 15-hour plane rides. So there's a lot of things that the NFL does that I just don't like. And I was pretty upset when Calvin Ridley got suspended for a year where there have been instances of drug abuse and specifically one that pisses me off, domestic violence, where these guys, outside of the rare few who do get that full season suspension, four to six games. So gambling is worse than beating on women, is what the NFL has told you in various times. Here's the other thing. I'm a DraftKings guy. I love it. I think sports gambling is awesome. The NFL's got its branding all over DraftKings, FanDuel, MGM, Atlantic City, Vegas, Mohegan Sun. Christ, I was in Aruba. Uh, two weeks ago, super late honeymoon, me and my wife. We had a great time. Our resort had a little mini casino. It was actually pretty cool. What did they have in the back of Sportsbook? Now, obviously, there's no NFL going on, but you'd be damn sure in a couple weeks, you go to that resort in Aruba where they have the Sportsbook, you're going to be able to put your coinage in there, print your ticket, and bet on the NFL games. 
So I understand where some of these players might be disgruntled. Can't have these conversations without bringing up Pete Rose. I think it's absurd that he's still not involved with, with baseball and Hall of Fame, specifically for what he did off the field. I know he's done clownish things off of it. There's the caveat to that where I'm also torn the devil's advocate. There are rules that are put in place in any facet of life, any employment, whether you work as a teacher, a cop, a fireman, an attorney, an athlete. Rules are meant to be followed. You don't have to like them, but they are rules. A good example to, to kind of compare this to, at least in my justification, would be the drug rules in the NFL. Some of these guys have legitimately taken substances that they did not take for an athletic advantage. They didn't know that something was banned and they took it and they got nailed for it. Accidental, but it's against league policy. You're suspended. Could things like that be more clear-cut? Sure. Rules are rules. Now, these guys did something wrong. I get it. But to me, there's a level of irony that the NFL's got all this stuff plastered everywhere. By the, by the parlay, the Giants, Cowboys, and Chiefs at plus 625, a $20 bet, gets you, whatever it is. And it's all over. But these guys can't do anything with it. I get it. So, yes, they're at fault for not following the rules. But I do think that there's a twist of irony there when the NFL doles out these suspensions and then you see serious drug and serious crime and abuse violations and these guys might get three, four, five, six games. And Calvin Ridley got suspended a whole year. A couple of these guys are suspended and they have to reapply for readmission into the league. So I just think there's an element there's an element with the NFL, I don't want to say illegitimacy. It, I just don't find it to be a league. Out, Roger Goodell cares about Roger Goodell. And he'll present as someone who cares. This guy doesn't care about the players. I think he's a lousy commissioner. I think he's full of you-know-what. You know, but the bottom line is, look at it in politics. You don't have to like the president. You don't have to like your governor. You don't have to like your mayor. You don't have to like your boss. But you better damn well respect the positions that they hold. Right? That's how the world works. Now, it sucks that these guys are suspended. Didn't bet on NFL games. Pete Rose swears to God that he didn't bet on MLB or Cincinnati Reds games. They did it. Rose is pun- It's time to get over the Pete Rose crap. I-, I said that already. I've said it on previous shows. But with these guys, it's it just a little bit alarming to me that the NFL's got all this gambling stuff plastered everywhere, and these guys are getting nailed for it right out of the gates here. We'll learn more. Maybe some of the things I said will be deemed to be wrong. If they are, I'll own up to it. But I think you all know where I'm coming from. Rules are meant to be followed, but sometimes the NFL could do a better job of being a little more transparent. All right, with that being said, enjoy these games coming up this weekend. Specifically, if you're out here on the East Coast, 8.30 tonight, 8.37 tip at MSG, 1-1 the series. Knicks, Cavs, it's a biggie at the Garden. Then the Garden gets another huge one tomorrow night. 8 p.m. puck drop. Rangers, Devils. Rangers look to go 3-0 on the Devils and close them out in game four. Wouldn't that be something? 
So we'll talk to you next week. Same time, same time slot. New date, Friday, April 28th next week, 5 p.m. right here on Sports Today with Peter J. Have a great week, everybody. Enjoy the games. I'll talk to you seven days from now. Sports Today with Peter J.